It's a privilege today to, to be with you wherever you're watching this and to be able to, to worship the Lord, to be able to spend time in his word. Uh, before we get into the message, I just want to take a moment and, and pray for you. It's my privilege every day to, to lift up uh, our Crosswinds family and friends up to the Lord, uh, but it's a special privilege to be able to sort of be uh, in your living room, uh, on your phone, wherever you're watching this, to sort of, in a way, pray with you. And so I'm going to take a moment and let's just go to the Lord together. Father God, I, I do come before you and we understand that these are unprecedented times. God, that we have been in this social distancing, this time of, of, of staying safe at home for, for weeks. And, and so God, I want to pray for those who, Lord God, have that physical anxiety. Uh, Lord, those who are sick, those who are fearful they will become sick those who have loved ones, Lord God, who are sick. And I, I pray that you lay your healing hand upon them that, Lord, we would, we would learn, as Paul did, that your, your grace is sufficient. God, that you are on the scene, that we're never alone. God, I pray for those that have emotional struggles, and there are those, Lord God, who even now, in the, in the sound of my voice, Lord, they're, they're, they're alone. Uh, they're in their home. They're not able to connect with those around them. And, Lord, we understand that emotionally that can can take a drain on us. But Lord God, it could increase the anxieties. It can certainly uh, take uh, depression and, and take it deeper. And, and Lord, we just want to stand against that. And we want to stand with our, with our friends and our church family and just ask that you would help them sense your presence and in a way maybe like they've never sensed it before. Uh, you are with them. They're not alone. You are their strength. Lord, I pray for the economic challenges. And, and Lord, I'm just starting to hear of friends who, who are losing their jobs or are fearful they may be here in the, in the next uh, few days or so. And God, we thank you that, that you ultimately are the one who supplies our needs. Help us as a church family come alongside each other and to be able to, uh, to care for each other's needs, even in this area. God, thank you for, for your abundance and even when we don't see it, we know you're working and that you're providing. And so, God, just continue to do that, I pray. Lord, thank you for the hope we have in you. It literally blows my mind that months ago when we looked at this series, Hope Rising, we had no idea that these things were going to take place, but, but you did. You knew the word that we needed to hear. And God, uh, really, since it's centered on Jesus, it's, it's the same message that has such power such power in our lives. So Lord, as we approach your word, I pray that you just open our hearts and minds up to what you want to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been saying this week, we do kick off a, a whole new series called Hope Rising. Nearly 2,000 years ago, and, and what took place in, in just several weeks uh, really changed everything. As we look at Christ's triumphal entry to his crucifixion, to his resurrection and his ascension, to Pentecost, it, it, it revolutionized the world. It, it changed the way that we look at ourselves. It changed the way we look at one another. It certainly changed the, the relationship that we can have with God. That, that, that what happened in that period of time literally brought hope to a fallen world. In fact, Paul wrote of this hope uh, to the church in, that was in Colossae. He, he writes to the Colossians, Colossians 1.27, he says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's the mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's amazing to me that Paul is speaking of God's unfolding plan for the world and above all, his plan of redemption in Christ. And that the hallmark of this revelation is this new covenant, this this Christ in you, the hope of glory. That God himself in the person of Christ is directly and personally present with his people. And not only is he present with us today, he assures each and every one of us who receive Jesus into our life as Lord and Savior that we'll have a future life with him when he returns. Now, I don't know about you, but I just have to say, that's hope. Now, oftentimes, when we use the word hope in the English language, it has sort of this, this, this residue, if you will, of doubt. For instance, you may say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. And even further, many times when we use the word hope in the English language, it's followed by the word so. I've heard this many times when I've said to somebody, are you sure you know, you're going to go to heaven? Do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they'll say, I hope so. However, this, the meaning of the words in scripture that are translated often hope shows no doubt at all. This word hope in scripture uh, speaks of great confidence. For instance, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. This verse carries with it all the confidence that comes with, with knowing for sure, to know without any question that the promises of God found in his word are true, that we can, we can count on them. Biblical hope is a reality and not a mere feeling because it's founded on our rock and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in our series, Hope Rising, we'll explore the finished work of Christ. We're going to look at the gift of the Holy Spirit, as well as the impact on each and every one of our lives. This is Passion Week, Passion Week. It begins with Palm Sunday. It ends with Easter. It's a week that begins with Christ's triumphal entry. He, he, he comes into Jerusalem and, and he goes to Malta Thursday. And then, of course, Christ's finished work on the cross on Good Friday. Passion Week speaks of hope loving. Passion Week speaks of Christ, who is our hope, as well as the one in whom we place our hope, showing sacrificial love for each and every one of us. Now, why is this called Passion Week? Passion Week is so named because of the passion with which Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and for me. Passion Week is described in all four of the Gospels and and contains several memorable events. Like Jesus cleared the temple for the second time. He he at one occasion during this week uh, disputed with the Pharisees over his authority uh, being God. Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse where he talks about the end times and, and teaches about sort of those signs that we can look at that precede his, his second coming. Then we have the beautiful picture of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples where he washes their feet and he institutes the, the new covenant in his blood and He gives his disciples these last-minute instructions and encouragement, and he prays his high priestly prayer, not just over those disciples present in the room, but his disciples for all time, for, for you and me, 
who are followers of Jesus. Then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He's waiting for his hour to come. It's there that he'll be betrayed by Judas. It's there that he'll be arrested and taken to several sort of sham trials, if you will, uh, before the chief priests and and Pontius Pilate and, and Herod. Following the trials, Jesus is viciously beaten beyond recognition by Roman soldiers, and he's even forced to carry his own instrument of execution. He carries his cross through the streets of Jerusalem on a path known as Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Jesus was crucified at Golgotha on the day before the Sabbath, was buried and remained in the tomb until Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, then glorious resurrection. We call this week Passion Week because in this time, Jesus Christ truly revealed his passion for us in suffering. He willingly went through all of this on our behalf and in doing so provides each and every one of us hope, hope. The word passion is from the Latin, which literally means to endure, to to suffer. Scripture often points to the suffering of Christ. Indeed, the, the the crucifixion of Christ is the apex of human history and, and the grand theme of the apostles' teaching. We read in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul's writing to the church there in Carnoth, and he, he writes this, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's through the passion of Christ that we're made right with God. His suffering was real. He, he literally suffered for us. He actually died. When Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He was in genuine anguish over what he was about to suffer. When Christ was beaten and mocked, when the, when the crown of thorns were pressed upon his head, when he was nailed to the cross and when he hung there and struggled to breathe, he was experiencing genuine, excruciating suffering to pay for our sins. Jesus, out of love for us, endured suffering unto death to save those of us who trust in him, providing hope, this hope-loving. We discover in Isaiah 3, a prophecy that was written several hundred years before the time of Christ. Now, what's remarkable is that in this prophecy, again, written several hundred years before Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy completely. It's a prophecy that foretells of Christ's sacrifice, of, uh, of the witness's initial reaction, of his truly salvific work. And so I want to sort of dig into Isaiah 53 together. We're going to start looking at this prophecy with the first three verses. And this is how it reads. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For we grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's an interesting part of the prophecy because Isaiah gives us a picture of how the contemporaries of Jesus, how they saw him. 
And what's amazing is when Jesus came to earth, when he took humanity upon his divinity, the path that he chose, he, he chose a path of, of humility, that he wasn't born in a royal palace, but a stable. And not only that, but, but the path to the cross. I mean, he, he wasn't a part of the elite when he was born. He, he wasn't a general, like he wasn't a war hero, if you will. It wasn't as if he was born into sort of this human standard of authority. No, no, no. He chose to be a carpenter and a rabbi. In fact, the scripture tells us that he didn't even have a home to call his own. That each day he may lay his head somewhere different. And those who followed him had to trust in that. That not only did Jesus come and understand that he came to die on the cross, but the path that he took to the cross was a difficult one for you and for me. I don't know about you, but when I think about the fact that Jesus loves us so much that when, we, when he came, he did so out of this genuine humility and love, it, it just raises hope within me. I, I receive hope from how other people saw Jesus. Like he can empathize with our needs. He can understand our struggles. That he, he didn't come as someone who would be on the cover of a magazine because of, of the home he lived in or, or because of what he had. That the authority of, of him being God was enough. And when he spoke, they say he spoke as one with authority. But it wasn't because of outward glory. He, he covered it up with his humanity. We receive hope from how others saw Jesus. And then the prophecy continues, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Here in this particular section of, of Isaiah is probably, arguably, one of the clearest statements of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in the, found in the Bible. Now, what do I mean by substitutionary atonement? It means that Jesus died in our place, that, that through, through Jesus, that he bore our sins. Jesus Christ bore our sins. People at the time of Christ's crucifixion, they, they thought he was being punished because of his own wrongdoing. See, they, they, they were uh, looking at the fact that he was suffering, but they had no understanding of why he was suffering. They didn't understand that, that, that when he was beaten and wounded and literally pierced through, that he was doing this for our healing. In fact, the scripture tells us his stripes have brought our healing. Now, I want to camp there just for a minute because there's been much debate as to if Isaiah had in mind uh, physical or, or spiritual healing. It's interesting. As this passage is quoted in the New Testament, it appears that Isaiah had both in mind, that when God inspired Isaiah to share this prophecy, that God wanted us to understand that both are covered by Christ. In Matthew 8, 16 through 17, it uses this verse to explain physical healing. But then we jump over to 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, and his verse is to explain spiritual healing. It, it, when, Jesus when Isaiah declared that by his stripes we are healed, 
both aspects of healing, both physical and, and spiritual, were in view. But we must also say that, that, that although these are both in view, that we got to understand what does that really mean practically for us today? Well, first, Christ has conquered death. And he offers eternal life with a new body and a fully restored soul. Now, by the way, I cannot wait to get my new body. Like, I cannot wait to get my new body. How about you? But a proper understanding of this verse, as it was originally written, empowers us to say without, without reservation that perfect, total, complete healing is God's promise to every believer in Jesus Christ. That, that Christ paid for, by his stripes, the, and through the totality of his work, healing for you and me. But we must also say that it's not promised to every believer right now. Just as the totality of our salvation is not promised to us right now. Now, me and me sitting there saying, Craig, what do you mean? Well, the Bible says that we have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. We've been saved. It also says that we are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18, and that we will be saved, 1 Corinthians 3.15. Now, what's happening there? When we come to Jesus, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, we're saved. Like our, our destiny has changed, our identity changes. We become children of God. We're never, no longer looked upon as sinners, but, but saints. And yet we are in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. In that sense, we're being saved. And we'll be saved. When Jesus returns, the full promise of salvation will be ours when we enter into paradise with him. Even so, in this same sense, we have been healed, we're being healed, and we'll be healed. We've been healed. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven, we're promised new life, we're healed. And yet we're being healed. We talked about this much in, our, in the past series. This is the last series we did. That, that, that in the process of sanctification, which is a word which simply means becoming more like Jesus, which, by the way, is a messy process, not because of God's part, but because of our part, we're in a process of healing. We're, 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 we're able to overcome past hurts and, and, and current habits and, and, and hang-ups. And one day, when Jesus returns, we'll be healed, like completely healed. No more tears, no more sorrow. God's ultimate healing is called resurrection, and it's a glorious promise to every believer. But catch this, please catch this. Every patch-up healing, I'm going to say that again, every patch-up healing, if you will, in this present age simply anticipates the ultimate healing that will come. That's why we can have all the faith in the world, and we pray that someone would be healed, and sometimes they are, and we go, sometimes they're not. But, but if they're in Christ, the ultimate healing is promised and secure. It's going to happen. Even in this pandemic, I, I've been praying that God would protect my family, my church family, those in our community. And, but I know ultimately real healing is only found in him because the ultimate healing only comes through resurrection. Jesus being the first of the resurrected. And those of us who are in relationship with him, the promise of life after this one. It's interesting, Isaiah also does something sort of, I think, funny. He compares us to sheep, and he also compares Jesus to sheep. And yet the comparisons are, are totally different. Like when he compares us to sheep, he's saying that we're stubborn and ignorant and 
sort of wandering our own way, the wrong way, getting ourselves in trouble. But when Jesus is described as sheep, as he's described as a sheep, he's, he's uncompromising. He's, he's, he's conquering. He's, he's silently absorbing, if you will, the punishment that's due us. The Father judged our iniquity, our sin, our wrongdoing, and laid it on the Son. See, we receive hope from Jesus, so how Jesus bore our sin. We receive hope from how Jesus bore our sin. And then verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken from the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This part really challenges me because I like to be right. How many of you out there like to be right? And, and, and if I feel I'm wronged, I, I know I'm being wronged for, for things that I haven't even done. I, I want to take some moment and sort of justify myself and, and, and explain why, why I'm being mistreated. And yet Jesus did none of that. He had all the power and authority of being God because Jesus is God. He had the full resources of heaven. But as he was being punished for our sins, he kept silent. He was like a lamb that was being led to the slaughter, the prophet tells us. He isn't helpless, but he's silent as he dies for you and me. Now, think about it for a minute. Just really think about it for a minute. If I were to die for any one of you, it would be a loving act. But in reality, it would only really mean that I would die a little sooner than I was probably expected to. And perhaps with the right circumstances, you may live a little longer than you would before you would finally die. I'm I'm not trying to be morbid here, but we're all going to die sooner or later. Yes, I'm here to encourage you this morning. Now look at Christ. He didn't need to die at all. He didn't need to die for, for his own sin because he had no sin. Jesus had no personal benefit to go to the cross and die except to glorify the Father and to offer us life in him. Jesus gave himself up as a willing sacrifice and he did so without complaint, without accusation, without defending himself. And the final irony is that when he's finally dead, and think about this, this prophecy was told several hundred years before Jesus. The prophecy said that he was placed in the tomb of a rich man, and through the Gospels we know he was placed in the tomb of the wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. What criminal is placed in, a, in such a, 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 an amazing tomb? Well, the one and only Jesus, who was prophesied several hundred years that would be so. See, we're told that even in death, even in his taking the transgression of God's people, our sins upon himself, he remained a holy one, despite all the pain and all the suffering. We receive hope from how Jesus suffered and died for us. Then verses 10 through 11. Yet it was will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear, he shall bear their iniquities. I just have to say to you today that the only reason a good father would ever choose to bruise and crush his son would be for some immense greater good. So what was this immense greater good that, that God the Father saw but would allow for his son to be bruised and crushed for us? Well, the Lord's greater good was the deliverance, our deliverance, our deliverance from sin. And, and, and as we turn to Christ and, and, and allow for his sacrifice to be ours, in other words, we receive him as Lord and Savior, we receive what he did on the cross in our stead, we're delivered. We find salvation. The good news is when we come to Christ and, and receive him as Lord and Savior, he declares us righteous, which means we're right with God. And it's Jesus' satisfaction resulting from glorifying the Father and saving us, which gives me hope. It says that Jesus was, was satisfied with what he'd done. But, he, but he, he saw us as being worth it. We receive hope from Christ's satisfaction. And then lastly, verse 12. It says, therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's a lot to take in. But in the end, in the end, the suffering and humiliation of Jesus only brings him greater glory. And, and, and it, brings, it brings exaltation to Christ. And, and, and also, those of us who are in Christ get to share in that victory. Jesus' finished work on the cross was complete, total. Nothing needs to be added to it to pay for our sin, to be made right with God and walk with him. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin, him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him you and, and me could be the righteousness of God. Over and over again, Isaiah emphasizes the point that Christ suffered on our behalf. He, he took our punishment. The work of Christ on the cross is made available to all of us, no matter what we've done, no matter what we're doing. And I tell you what, I receive hope, and I believe we receive hope from Jesus' salvific work and reward. Christ's passion, his, his loving willingness to suffer for you and me. And when everything's said and done, what really brought him the greatest joy was glorifying God and when we receive him saying it's worth it. See, you, you may ask the question, why would Jesus go through all this for you? I've asked it, why would Jesus go through all that for me? And it was to glorify God, but as we look at this prophecy, it was also so that we would come into that loving relationship with him. And every time someone does that, he says, it's worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. I'm worth it to him. And all of heaven celebrates with him when we receive this amazing act of love and place our faith in the one true hope, Jesus Christ.
Where do we go from this truth? Well, how do we respond to this passion of Christ? Well, I think there's two things. We receive them, and if you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that's your next step. He loves you so much that he didn't just say it. He humbly came and died for you. We, we trust him. What an important message for this time in the midst of this pandemic. I mean, it's a message for all times, but especially in the midst of this pandemic. How important is it for us to realize that he's trustworthy? We can trust him. Things may not go the way we want them to, but God is in control. I ask you, where does your hope come from? I hope you find the, the hope in Jesus who loves us enough to give it all for us. I, I, I just hope today that this hope loving, that Jesus is loving of us, that the hope we get to place in him and find in him will be something that doesn't just consume us and bring us peace and, and power and salvation. I mean, I certainly pray it does that. But I also pray it spreads to those around us. Jesus is our hope loving. He loves you. He says you're worth it. I want to pray for us right now. And Father God, I just ask that you would continue to meet us where we're at. Continue to direct our steps. And God, may we be obedient to whatever that next step is with you. If we've yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, may we take the time even now in the quietness of our heart and say yes to you. Realizing that when we do that, it's just another time where you said it was worth it. All that pain, all that anguish, that death on the cross was worth it. That's the love you have for us. And Lord, may those of us who have experienced that love, may even now our hope in you to be built up. And may that that love that you have for us fill us to overflowing that in a world that's in the midst of all this chaos would be ushered into your peace through us. Fill us with contagious hope. Fill us with contagious love. Thank you for loving us so completely, so extraordinarily. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.